Welcome to Be Happy, a podcast by the Hepatitis B Foundation discussing all things related to Hepatitis B. It's your host, Bright and Anusha. Today we are joined by Dr. Parikh. He's a hepatologist at the University of Michigan. Dr. Parikh, please introduce yourself. My name is Nihar Parikh. I'm a hepatologist at the University of Michigan. I've been practicing there for about 10 years. You know, I got interested in hepatology during my training. I trained in Chicago, Northwestern, lots of variety of patients, lots of different, you know, aspects of hepatology to be interested in from infectious disease to cancer to autoimmune diseases. And so I think that really attracted me to the position. And I specialize in liver cancer, and that's where I've specialized here at the University of Michigan. I run our liver tumor program, and I'm really happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Prey. So I'll start with the first question. What does surveillance or screening look like for liver cancer, and why do you think it's so important for patients or people to get screened for liver cancer? Yeah, so, you know, liver cancer screening consists of conducting surveillance using ultrasound every uh, six months. In addition to ultrasound, we use an alpha feta protein level, which is a blood test that people can get. So, you know, the screening uh, is recommended because it's been associated with earlier detection of liver cancer, improved receipt of curative treatments for liver cancer. So not only can we detect it earlier, we can cure it more often. And, you know, improves overall survival too. You know, the reason that we recommend it is because of these associations. Now, there are some limitations to the evidence that we have for screening. Screening has never been evaluated in what we call a randomized trial where patients are assigned to screening or no screening. So we actually don't know if screening itself is important or just engagement in your care, active care is important. But just given the preponderance of evidence of, you know, kind of less than ideal data showing that screening is effective. The liver societies, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, the European societies, the Asian societies, all recommend screening every six months with uh, this uh, ultrasound and alpha-feta protein. It is pretty intensive. So patients sometimes miss intervals, don't get it, but that's the recommendation. It's a little bit more intensive than things like colorectal cancer screening, which is like once every 10 years or five years. Um, this is every six months, but regardless, given the natural history of cancer and the risk in patients with cirrhosis and chronic hepatitis B, we do recommend screening in those populations. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, I think is you mentioned about the benefits that comes with the early screening. If uh, that comes with screening, if the disease is caught very early, the options you have more options in that way compared to if it's late then those, the window kind of limits on what options is available. So I think uh, that's very interesting. Do you see any difference in the rates of cases, either in cirrhosis or liver cancer, as it pertains to certain ethnicities? So for instance, uh, an, someone who is an African compared to someone who is an Asian, is there a variation in, in that area? You know, in cirrhosis, there are variations in the incidence depending on the etiology. And certain etiologies are uh, more likely to happen in certain ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So that's where we think some of these differences come from. But there are also differences in ethnic and racial groups based upon their risk and their genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you chronic hepatitis B as an example. Mm -hmm. So chronic hepatitis B, you know, afflicts a lot of people around the world. 
And, you know, the risk varies by gender. So mm-hmm. liver cancer risk is about a four to one ratio of males to females. So m- males are more likely to be affected than females. So the screening guidance kind of takes that into account. So, you know, in patients that basically got hepatitis B at birth, what we call mm-hmm. vertical transmission, where the, the mother transmits it to the baby, which is a large portion of our Asian populations in the U.S., mm-hmm. for example, and some African and Middle Eastern populations um, were transmitted this way. It is recommended to start screening at age 40 in men and age 50 in women, just knowing that difference, regardless if you have cirrhosis or not. Now, if you're African or African-American, the screening recommendations for patients with chronic hepatitis B is much younger. They haven't quite defined what that is, but in my practice, mm-hmm. we screen, you know, starting at 25 in those populations, because we've seen, you know, I've seen in my clinics, 30, 35 year old patients from Africa with chronic hepatitis B presenting with liver cancer. In terms of cirrhosis, Mm -hmm. the etiologies that have the highest risk are viral hepatitis, so hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And the etiologies that have the lowest risks are fatty liver disease or, you know, metabolic associated steatotic liver disease, you know, depending on which nomenclature you use. So that's typically associated with diabetes and obesity or alcohol-related liver disease. So those rates tend to be lower. And so, you know, those are the differences. There are other more rare causes of liver disease, like iron overload, that actually have the highest incidence of liver cancer, highest risk, but they tend to be rare in the patient populations that we typically take care of in the liver clinics. Thank you very much. You did touch on a, a follow-up question that I was going to ask about the guidelines for screening Hep B. And I think it's important that you mentioned that even the guidelines says that you still account for those people who are not covered or don't fit into the guidelines, but you know that they develop liver cancer at very age. So you still look at them from that perspective. I think we had this conversation some time ago where the whole idea was that some providers were sticking so tightly to the guidelines that they don't want to kind of have a leeway or flexibility when it comes to the guidelines because it says 40 they say for okay they stick with the 40 and 50 they don't do anything lower so i, I think it's very interesting that even he says so you are part of i think a few providers who consider the race associated with certain people and you still follow the guidelines. So it's good to hear that you, you do that in your practice, because as we know, a lot of Africans typically develop liver cancer at a very younger age compared to more other race, other ethnicities. And so considering that, I, I think makes a huge difference. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, yeah. And actually, in the, the latest version of the guidelines just came out a couple of months ago, and they do include, they don't include a age cutoff, they just say earlier ages in African, and mm-hmm. African Americans allowing that leeway. But, you know, typically, I, I start early, I think that's the right thing to do, even though surveillance is somewhat intensive. You know, we've seen enough cases of liver cancer in that population to, to justify it. Okay, thank you. So not to digress too much from this particular question, but you mentioned that there's obviously variation and a disparity in liver cancer cases for African-Americans and then for Asians and other populations. So I'm kind of interested in learning a little bit more about how environment also plays a role here. Like, for example, we know that aflatoxin, exposure to aflatoxin is very common in sub-Saharan African regions. 
like let's say that there's someone who's african-american and then there are african immigrants and maybe like second generation third generation immigrants do you see that variation or that disparity in liver cancer among those populations or is it just for like anyone is it just specific to immigrants or like specific to people living here yeah yeah, it's a great question. So first, you mentioned the alpha toxin. I think that's a it's an interesting story about the alpha toxin and like how much of a role that plays in liver cancer. I think if you look back at some of the studies that have looked at this, they've probably been a lot of them have been confounded by hepatitis B, actually, and HIV. So actually, I don't know how strong that association act is the alpha toxin exposure. What we do see in second and third generation, even African-Americans who've gotten hepatitis B as a child that have been born here, raised here, we still see higher incidence in those populations. So I think that there's something genetic and there have been various genetic factors that have been associated with a liver cancer development in those populations. So there's something inherent in that population. It's probably not just environmental. That being said, there are environmental insults that can increase your risk of liver cancer. There's several kind of industrial exposures for factory workers that have been associated with that. doesn't happen much often anymore given current work standards in the U.S. But things like alcohol, for example, play a role. Things like obesity play a role, presence of diabetes, smoking, cigarettes can increase your risk of liver cancer. So these are known factors that increase the risk uh, of liver cancer if you have a propensity or underlying liver disease to develop it anyway. So those are the environmental things that we often talk about. Yeah. And thank you for clarifying that because we hear that so often that we see it in the literature about aflatoxin and, and the environmental impact of liver cancer. So what are some of the major barriers or challenges to liver cancer surveillance for patients? Yeah. So, you know, we've done some studies to look at this where we've done surveys of patients and say, well, like, you know, what are the, what are the barriers? So if you look at surveillance adherence across populations, you know, how regularly are people getting surveyed? Are they getting it on a, you know, regular basis? Only about 25% of patients with underlying liver disease are getting regular surveillance. And there's several barriers to that. And if you ask patients, first, I've mentioned already, it's intensive, right? It requires an imaging test every six months, rather, you know, this is not a yearly thing. It's not, not even like a mammogram, not like a colonoscopy. So, it takes a lot, you know, if there's, you know, if there's something that happens in somebody's life where they can't get their interval, um, they may miss an interval and that will put them out of compliance for surveillance. But things like transportation, co-pays, costs of doing imaging, knowing where to get the test scheduled, getting it done, just the logistical barriers are considerable. And so I think with the ultrasound, that's one thing that is been a challenge across the board, uh, no matter what practice setting you look at. And part of the reason that our surveillance rates tend to be much lower in liver cancer. I think the other part of this is that, you know, I mentioned earlier, the level of evidence or like the amount of evidence behind liver cancer screening is not, not as high as it could be. It's not like colorectal or breast cancer screening. And so some providers don't, don't believe in it or don't, it's not on their radar screen because it's not part of like the official, the United States Preventative Task Force is, is one of the things that people look at for screening guidelines. And liver cancer screening is not included because the level of evidence isn't high enough at this point. This is mostly recommended by societies. So you can imagine if you have a primary care provider that is you know not in tune with the liver societies, they may not order it because they're just not aware of the guidelines or maybe don't believe in the evidence behind it. So I think that's some of the barriers that we run into if we think about kind of a system-wide why people are not getting screened. 
just to follow up on that, and this is from your paper that you presented a few weeks ago. So my understanding is, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, so there's limitations that you couldn't find whether it's due to the, the lack of uh, surveillance or decline in surveillance or because there's no high level, high amount of surveillance is due to either providers are not, they are failing to order the surveillance or patients not adhering to the provider's orders. And then sometimes too, there's, uh, I think you, you said uh, something like a lack of cirrhosis recognition. So my follow-up is, if you have to take or make a guess on this, since you didn't find that in your work, what do you think is going on? I mean, if if we know that it is very surveillance is very important, and yet we are seeing like we are not seeing a high amount of it going on, what is going on here? Is it a little bit of all these three things that is going on, or it, yeah, what else is happening? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a little bit from everything, right? So we had done some previous studies, and there's some previous studies published from the VA about how, what percentage of patients with liver cancer had undiagnosed cirrhosis prior to their diagnosis of liver cancer. And it's somewhere between 15 to 25% of patients have undiagnosed cirrhosis. I think cirrhosis is one of those things that you have to be really looking for it or in, in tune to to find, especially if it's early stage cirrhosis or, you know, compensated cirrhosis. But, you know, these other barriers that I talk about, providers not knowing the guidelines, not believing in the guidelines because the level of evidence isn't so good, the lack of easy ways for patients to get surveillance, all play a role as well. So, it's, it's a, you know, there's a continuum of care when we think about screening, mm -hmm. and it goes from disease recognition, providers ordering, patients adhering and getting it, and then, you know, downstream, how effective is it? You know, can you diagnose early stage liver cancer? Can you get it treated? And that you have to make that whole continuum work in order for your screening programs to work. And there's probably many places in that continuum where we fail patients for liver cancer screening. And you can see that borne out in, you know, epidemiologic studies. That's a huge chunk of number from the study. I mean, 50 to 20%, that's a lot. That's a lot. So what can we do from the provider level and also from the community level to increase, to be able to kind of get over the barrier that decreases this surveillance and help improve or increase increase the barrier? What, what, what can we do? One is, can we appropriately recognize the at-risk population, right? So who is at risk of developmental liver cancer? Mm -hmm. The United States Preventative Task Force recommends hepatitis B screening in patients who are at risk, you know, patients from endemic countries, you know, are, are these populations, household contacts with hepatitis B, et cetera. So that's, that's an example. Certain patients who are higher risk with diabetes or alcohol use disorder should be screened. Every adult should be screened for hepatitis C. That's one of, one of the uh, United States Preventative Task Force recommendations. So these are things that can be implemented to increase cirrhosis recognition. Then, you know, once we get into the screening paradigm, like when patients should be screened, I think systems have to be put in place in order for patients to get their screening on a regular basis. So there has to be some sort of reminder system, et cetera, that has to be put in place. So in our hepatology practice, for example, at the University of Michigan, we have a quality reminder. So 
there's a, something programmed into our electronic medical record so that patients that are at risk that are, you know, that meet criteria for screening, something pops up every six months that, mm-hmm. Hey, this person's out of, out of surveillance for their, or out of the window for their screening. So these are just examples of uh, things that systems can do, but I think you do have to have some sort of system in place to make this work because it's intense. You got to get reminders, et cetera. And so these systems have to invest in this sort of thing. That's something I might want to talk to my provider and see if they can also put it in their system because it's difficult sometimes to remember. I've tried to, I've done my possible best to follow every single one, but sometimes it's like, life stuff happens things come and then sometimes you just forget and so that alert will will really be important uh, for patients to remember thank you so you mentioned that cirrhosis is a common risk factor or sort of the preliminary step before getting liver cancer but there are also some cases of liver cancer that occur without cirrhosis how common do you think that is and why do you think that is what's what's the rationale behind that there's two main populations that we see that get liver cancer without cirrhosis. And those are patients with chronic hepatitis B and in patients with metabolic-associated steatotic liver disease or nemasult or fatty liver diseases, which is, which is another thing that's commonly known. And there's something about those diseases, the chronic inflammation associated with them that leads to cancer development. Now, in, in fatty liver disease or nemasult, you know, the incidence is very low without cirrhosis. So it's to the point where we don't recommend screening that population unless they have cirrhosis. It's just probably not cost effective to do screening in all those patients with, you know, metabolic associated liver disease. So right now, there's no risk stratification that we use or anything else like that, that it just seems to be a random things that happens to patients that is difficult to screen for when you have fatty liver disease. Now that may be disconcerting to patients, but there are harms to screening that we should think about as well. You know, false positives, the logistical and costs that we talk about that can lead to to harms, psychological harms, downstream testing, other costs, et cetera. So we try to maximize the benefits, minimize the harms. So we try to pick a higher risk population in order to do screening. Now in the chronic hepatitis B population, the other population that develops liver cancer in the absence of cirrhosis, the guidelines take that into account. And that's where we have age-based screening, regardless of the presence of cirrhosis. So if you don't have cirrhosis and you're a male with chronic hepatitis B that was, you know, transmitted as a child, then you should get screened starting at age 40. And if you're a female, it should be starting age 50. Uh, Unless you're African or African-American, which we had talked about earlier, which, you know, we start usually in their 20s. The other population that we think about is also if you have a family history of liver cancer. So, so if a first degree relative with chronic hepatitis B had liver cancer, usually we start screening five to 10 years before they were diagnosed with liver cancer in order to, you know, we think that there may be an enhanced risk because of that family history. And so that's important to know kind of, you know, your family. So that's the, that's the kind of the recommendations in the non serotic populations to summarize fatty liver. Don't necessarily recommend screening. Chronic hepatitis B, we do. Now, if you have cirrhosis and chronic hepatitis B, you should be screened regardless, but regardless of your age. But these age cutoffs are in the setting of non serotic chronic hepatitis B. Just uh, a follow up on that. Do you see any role 
that I mean, when it comes to head B, let me take head B for instance. Uh, since uh, you said some situations where they don't detect cirrhosis, but they, are, they detect liver cancer later on, so it doesn't, it kind of doesn't follow the typical process where you go from cirrhosis to liver cancer, it jams the cirrhosis aspect. Thinking about that, is there any rule that you think maybe head B genotypes might play in any of? Any of these situations? Yeah, there's certain genotypes of hepatitis B that are have increased risk of development of HCC, but the risk is such across genotypes that we don't recommend screening variations based upon genotype at this time. I, I think that the science shows that there's differential risk, but the incidence is enough regardless of the genotype to adhere to those recommendations. Um, so we're kind of genotype agnostic on some level. So... Now, one of the controversies in the field is should we start treating patients earlier to decrease this risk with hepatitis B? You know, as you know, the the guidelines have kind of gone back and forth about when to start treatment in mm-hmm. chronic hepatitis B. And this is kind of a controversy in the field as to whether we should start offering treatment earlier to decrease the risks of all this stuff happening down the road. And that's an ongoing debate, I'm sure, you know, can be a subject of a future podcast. <laughs> sure. I'm actually a proponent advocating for that because uh, I think it's too much risk to take when you have to wait to meet the deadlines uh, requirements. You never know what could happen within that time. So I'm, I'm actually one of those people who think it should be. I think at the long run, it's better off to start treatment early than waiting. So like you said, it could probably be another debate for another podcast, which I think everyone will, will have evidence to provide. So that's good uh, to bring up. So before we let you go, any final advice or comments or concern you have to share with patients who might be worried about either developing cirrhosis or liver cancer, either true because they are head B patients or they have other liver, like you said, fatty liver and other liver conditions that could put them at risk. What do you want them to know about these things? I mean, we always preach the importance of monitoring. And so I think that plays an important role, but as a provider, uh, maybe you can stress on that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I think you can think of it, this, this continuum as being very important. So if you think you're at risk of liver disease, it's important to get screened and risk stratified, right? So you know, if you've had an alcohol use problem, if you have diabetes and overweight and you want to get your liver checked out, if you have fatty liver disease, if you think you might have household contacts or risk factors for viral hepatitis, getting a test, getting screened is probably the best way to go. Because I think that's one of the failures we see in our practice and in, in the research is that recognition of liver disease can be very spotty depending on the provider who's, you know, what they're in tune with and what they're what they're recognizing. And then once you're diagnosed of having that and kind of know your risk, right, and know what the guidelines are for your risk. And so uh, I think the guidelines are accessible, but you know, essentially if you have cirrhosis, you should be screened unless you have a contraindication to being screened for whatever reason or there's a there's another issue going on, so it's something to talk to your provider about and making sure you get screened on a regular basis, you know, that every 6 month interval you have to Keep it in your calendar. As you mentioned, Bright, you have to kind of remember it's hard if something mm-hmm. comes up. I will put a plug in that we're starting a large national trial for screening for liver cancer that's going to maybe take ultrasound out of the picture. We're going to use a blood-based 
screening mechanism. So there's this will come down the road in the next several years. But this trial is opening at 15 sites around the uh, around the U.S. Uh, starting early next year. And so hopefully this will take some of those barriers we talked about with ultrasound away. Mm-hmm. But right now we live in this ultrasound paradigm. And I think, you know, making being your own advocate, making sure it gets done. Um, we've tried to done do things in our system where the patients can schedule the ultrasounds themselves using mm-hmm. the patient portal now. So, you know, you can just get it, you can do it yourself. So those are some of the things that I think are important. And then, you know, once you've, once you're found with a nodule, once you've, you know, something is found on the ultrasound, making sure you get that follow-up testing, the next, the MRI, the CT scan, and, you know, making sure you go down the, down the line and making sure it's read by a, an abdominal radiologist that kind of knows how to look at liver imaging. I think that's one of the things that we see that's tough sometimes in the community. So there are specific ways to look at liver imaging. So this goes along with that continuum. Like if you screen people and you find a nodule, but you don't go all the way through to the to the diagnosis of early stage cancer, then, you know, the screening is much less effective, you know, going through all that work to just try to find the early stage. So it has to go all the way down the line. So I think that's my advice is uh, kind of understand the continuum here and kind of, you know, where you stand in that as an individual patient. Great advice. And I also hope that the study goes well so we can kind of find another option to ultrasound and maybe that might be easier and increase the surveillance rate. Who knows? We always have to remain hopeful, I guess. So, uh, But thank you for your time and everything. We really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. This is very, it's a very educative and very important subject that a lot of patients are interested in. And it's good to have your perspective and share ideas on this. So thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate you guys uh, inviting me on this and really kind of a pleasure to talk through these topics that are near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please subscribe for future episodes about hepatitis B. If you have any questions, please direct them to info at hepb.org. You can support our programs at the Hepatitis B Foundation by going to www.hepb.org slash donate or click on the links provided on this page. We appreciate your support. Stay tuned for more episodes.